Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. You probably know him as the lovably insane, quirky Dwight Schrute on The Office, but you are about to learn a lot more about him. Rain Wilson is here today. I just loved talking to him about his interesting childhood, how he got into acting, and how the role of Dwight came to be. We're also going to talk about the importance of religion in his life, his company, Soul Pancake, how we need to connect more as human beings, and so much more. I'm really excited to have you here. I had so much fun on your podcast. Great. Thank you for welcoming me to your space. and. I'm happy to welcome you to mine. Thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah. That was a great interview experience that Reza and I had uh, on Metaphysical Milkshake. And um, you had so many really cool things to say. And I just love the way that you're, you you walk the walk, you know, and that's just wow. really, really cool to see and experience. That's really nice. So many of us, and I know I'm speaking for myself and some of my friends, came to know you on the show and as this brilliantly bizarre comedic character. And and yet I'm always really curious about how you began because then I get to know you as a person. When you launched Soul Pancake, I, I found it online and thought, oh my God, this is what we've all needed. And then I found out it was yours. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need to know more about this guy yeah. because I know this character, but who is this person who's so interested in the sort of metaphysical and and in our wellness on the internet. And then I did your podcast and we had this conversation about faith and purpose. And I was like, I like him so much. And I just thought to myself, were you this sort of observational and, and open and interested in the world around you when you were a little kid? Like, what were you like at 10? Oh, well, I, you know... Hmm. There's a lot of different ways to go with this. But what I was like at 10 was just painfully, painfully shy and insecure. Mm. And soon thereafter, skinny as a rail and soon thereafter kind of pimply and just always felt myself kind of a, a misfit and a brain. I just someone just alienated that would never and could never fit in. So I think that as an actor, I always gravitated toward the roles of the characters that can never and will never fit in. Like I would never know how to be like a popular person. You know, I wouldn't know how to play someone who is like successful and well-balanced and admired and with lots of friends or something like that. I'm always going to play outsiders in some Mm. way, shape or form, usually comedic ones, but I've done dramatic ones 
as well. But, you know, the interesting story about the acting thing is that my mom left me and my dad when I was two years old. And I never knew why or how. I'd ask my dad, and I basically didn't see her again until I was about 15. Wow. I saw her one, one or two or three times super briefly in that time. And I would always ask my dad, why did you guys get a divorce? And he would never really say. He's like, oh, we, we just went on different journeys and kept it really vague. So when I started getting interesting, interested in acting when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, my dad was really weird about it. And that's when I was starting to get to know my mom again and my birth mother again. And then finally, when I was 21, 22, somewhere in there, I asked my birth mother, her name is Shay. I said, why did you guys get a divorce? And she said, you, you don't, you don't know your dad never said, and he goes, no, he just kept it really vague. And she was like, um, I was an actress in Seattle in the late sixties and I left your dad to have an affair with a theater director. And he never, my dad never badmouthed her. He never said a single bad thing about her, wow. even though she cheated on him and left and had this infant that saddled him with this like infant and toddler and then ran off gallivanting with in her love affair. And so I always thought like, it was so weird that my dad was kind of kind of put off by me being an actor and seemed like really... He, he supported me doing the arts. It wasn't about that, but just acting, he was just a little, Ooh. so it's so interesting that, that there was, seems to be a genetic component too, that my mom, who I never knew, I had no idea she had been an actress and I just started getting interested into it and, and going into it. And, uh, and then, yeah, so that's, that's that. That's so interesting. Yeah. And what a kindness. You know, your dad didn't project his broken heart onto you as a kid. Yeah, yeah. That's hard for us. Yeah, yeah. We've had, um, you know, my dad's and, dad and I have had our ups and downs, as, you know, kids and parents often do. But I do really respect that about him. Like, mm. he he doesn't say, he doesn't badmouth people. You know, he has a lot of integrity in, in a mm. lot of those kind of ways. That's really cool. Yeah. So where did you grow up? This was Seattle, you know. This was Seattle, but we moved to Chicago when I was 16. And that's when I, I went to this really great high school called New Trier. That's kind of infamously, it's a wealthy high school. We were very, we were not wealthy at all, but we moved into like the one apartment building that was in the like radius of this high school. And it was a lot of millionaires houses, but it has incredible arts programs, of course, because it's got all this money. And that's a whole other topic of conversation about social justice. Like mm -hmm. why are high schools and schools based on the property taxes and property values around those schools? It's so because this was in Wilmette, Illinois. And then, you know, six miles south of there, you're in North Chicago and there's housing projects and the, and this chicken wire windows you know, high schools six miles away. And we had our own radio station mm -hmm. and dance studio with like a sprung floor and a theater, giant theaters, like three different theaters and stuff wow. like that. Because the funding of uh, high schools is based on property values. Anyway, so that's where I kind of started acting was when I went to Chicago for my final years of high school. And, uh, mm -hmm. and that's where I got into it. But really, like, I don't know, I don't know your story about how you got into the acting thing, but for me, ultimately, it came down to, so there's the 10-year-old kid, super insecure, and the pimply kid was a little older, a little nerdier, and I was doing, like, I played the bassoon in the orchestra, and I went to Model United Nations conferences, and I was on the chess team, and I would drive around Seattle competing in chess matches, and then all of a sudden, I started doing acting, and I started making people laugh, and then cute girls asked me to sit down at their lunch table with them, and wow. so I was like... I mean, I remember inside just being like, okay, fuck all that other stuff. I'm not, this is, I'm doing this thing. <laughs> I'm doing the thing that gets me invited to sit with the cute girls at their lunch table in the cafeteria. So at that point, I just kissed goodbye to the bassoon the and the chess and the Model United Nations and oh, the damn. Dungeons and Dragons. I let all that go. I was like, I'm, I'm doing this thing. Got it. Yeah. Do you still play chess? I do. I've taken a hiatus from it because I get too obsessed. I put the app, the chess.com app on my phone and 
I can just spend hours, I'll just go hours diving into matches and speed chess and chess puzzles and opening, learning openings. And it just, I don't have the brain space to do it. I can't do it part time. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you realize the, the first step is, is the admitting of the addiction, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Something I'm curious about, Seattle as a boy. Yeah. Chicago as a teenager. Yeah. I lived in Chicago for four years. It's like my home away from home. I have a lot of Chicago pride. But you had a, a sort of stint in between and you were living in Nicaragua. Correct? Yeah, that was not – that was pre – well, yeah, it was during the Seattle years. Yeah, but so my – So my parents – were members of the Baha'i faith. Mm. And the they went to go work with the Baha'i community in the late 60s, right after, I, oh, when my mom left my dad, what did he do? Well, he was, he was a Baha'i and he had this giant white pudgy toddler and he packed me up under one arm and he moved to Central America. So- cool. I spent from two to five in uh, mostly Nicaragua, but also Mexico, mm. and lived in the jungles of, of Nicaragua on the Mosquito Coast as a, as a child. And what was happening there? What was your dad doing, and how, how so, were you growing up? This is kind of like the Baha'i version of missionary work. So it's a little, it's better than missionary. Missionary has a very bad um, connotation because it's, you know, like converting the natives and stopping them from going to hell. Baha'is are not about that. So, you know, we do talk about the Baha'i faith and, and teach it and by principles, but service work, working with the nascent Baha'i communities of the area. Mm-hmm. So he was doing a lot of that stuff. But also my dad started businesses. He started an oyster farm in Nicaragua. Whoa. Yeah. He started like gathering, shucking oysters, putting them in brine, uh, canning them, sending them out to Managua, and then they would get sent to like Mexico City and other places like that. And he was, yeah, he had an oyster farm business. That's so interesting. Yeah. Are, yeah. are you a pro at shucking an oyster? I'm terrible at shucking oysters. God, me too. And I, I want to know how to do it. It's so hard to do. I, I don't know when you see those guys doing it, it's crazy. I don't understand it. But I, I was a cater waiter in New York for years, and sometimes we would have to like prep and shuck oysters and eggs. I would slice my fingers open. It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. But I love I, eating them. I had this conversation with somebody the other day just about practical skills. And mm-hmm. you realize that because so much of the universe is tech-based now, like yeah. I looked around and I'm like, I don't know how to do anything. <laughs> like I can hang shelves. That's great. Oh, well, that's good. Um, that's something. I'm, I'm, I'm handy, but I wouldn't know how to fix an air conditioner yep. or a carburetor. Yep. I don't know how to shuck an oyster. Yeah. I can hard boil an egg, but like, cool, that's going to save us when the apocalypse happens. Like, I, I want to, I almost want to go take shop classes or something. Yeah. In all your spare time. I mean, I know. But it's a fantasy. I mean, I do have a, <laughs> I have a great appreciation of the fact, like when I was getting going in college and it's like the mid eighties and stuff, like I had a bunch of broken down cars that I bought, you know, and literally like going to the, you know, in the new back of the newspaper and buying a Toyota for, you know, $1,100 and mm. putting in a carburetor and new brakes and Whoa. changing my own oil and stuff like that. So I, I went through a period of time which I'm really grateful for that I had to, I, cause I didn't have an alternative. I mm. was broke and I needed a car and mm. I had to, you know, I had to work a job and I had to learn how to fix shit and I couldn't hire handyman or gardeners mm-hmm. or anything like that. So, um, I'm grateful for that time in my life. Mm. That's really cool. You talk, I, I've, I've heard you talk about what it was like growing up you know, with your dad and, and growing up, as you said, not in a family with money, mm-hmm. you know, shopping at the Salvation Army, like not having a ton of stuff as a kid. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you winding up in such a wealthy school in Chicago? Yeah. That How was is like, that for a That was like living inside a John Hughes movie. I mean, it was literally because New Trier is kind of based on one of those John Hughes kind of high schools, like pretty and pink kind of high schools. Yeah. And 
it was, I was the kid from the wrong side of the tracks in Seattle. It's not like the Seattle neighborhood was like poor, but it was working class. My friends' dads were insurance salesmen and fishermen and carpenters, and they weren't lawyers and doctors and stuff like that. So I was this kid from suburban Seattle and we were pretty broke and and, you know, we drove from Seattle to Chicago in a U-Haul, you know, with the stuff in the back and mm. moved into an apartment building in Wilmette. And, and you know, it was, it's, it's fascinating. It's one of the most seminal times in my life. Like, I, I'm really grateful for it because I was, like I said, this intensely nerdy kid. Mm. And I really almost decided to change who I was in the world at 16. I, was, I, I saw it as like... I had my first girlfriend in Seattle. I was heartbroken at leaving her. I was sobbing and I was so heartbroken about that. But I, I was really into like punk and new wave mm-hmm. and and the, the arts and, and being an artist. And so I, I just said like, I, I don't have to be the same person I was in Seattle at Shortcrest High School. I can go to Nutria High School and kind of reinvent myself. So it was like this when I came into Nutrier, like I had a new wave haircut. Like I had a picture of David Bowie and tore out of a magazine and went into like a, went into a hair salon and was like, can you make my hair look like this? And so I had this kind of punky kind of thing. And I had torn jeans and I had clash t-shirts and Mm -hmm. army jackets and, and boots and stuff like that. And so I came into Nutrier. I was like, who's this outrageous punk rebel kid yeah. artist kid and they didn't know like my model united nations and and ceramics club passed hey and- but i want to hang out with the kid who's in ceramics club and plays chess and is in model united yeah, nations yeah. i love that kid i know I, I i'm he's still he's still in here he's still in there somewhere but so i kind of reinvented myself in mm. some ways i was, still was pretty nerdy so it was really exciting. And then I started acting. And like I said, I got invited to the cute girls table. And and then I saw that I could make people laugh. And and that started my acting career. I had some really amazing acting teachers there that I'm so I'm still in touch with and really grateful for. And that started started my path. That's so cool. Were you a big reader as a kid? I was. What what kind of things oh were God, you into dude. reading? So my uh, my TV room now are like where we sit, media room, TV room. It's just a it's just den. a small, it's a den with a TV on the wall. But um, when you say media room, it sounds so fancy. There's no, I know, it makes it just, sound like you have some Bob Iger screening room in your yeah, house there's or something. Yeah, no, there's nothing like that. <laughs> You're um, like, it's not Disney. But I have, I have like 250 science fiction books from the 70s all around the walls. Whoa. And that was only part of my collection. I've read every single one of those books. So I was a huge, to add to my nerd cred, I read all of these science fiction books from when I was about 12 to 16. I read hundreds and hundreds of science fiction books. Yeah, I was, that's all I would do. You know, I would just go home and I would do my homework and I'd eat some yogurt and then I'd just go in my room and I would read science fiction for hours and hours and hours. God, isn't that so cool though? It's like you weren't on Instagram. You were reading. Yeah. You were exploring worlds. Yeah. Who... Who would you say is your favorite science fiction author? Oh, that's a great question. Um, God, I have so many. I or, or maybe five. I won't do that to you. I okay, can never pick a five. Um, yeah. I mean, Isaac Asimov is is great, and Arthur C. Clarke. Those are like the two kind of legends of the genre. I really liked this fantasy writer named Jack Vance, who did a lot of mm. more fantastical stuff. I loved Michael Moorcock. And he was more kind of fantasy science fiction. Clifford Simak, he wrote a lot of really great speculative fiction. Philip K. Dick is is one of the legends. Yeah, he did Blade Runner and, you know, Man in the High Castle and stuff like that. So cool. Wow. And did that stay with you as you get into your teenage years, as you move into the space of acting and storytelling at 16? Did you keep up a voracious reading habit? 
No, then then it was, you know, when it, once you go into the acting thing, then it's like reading plays and working on scenes and stuff like that. So it's a mm. very different relationship to reading. I kind of gave up on science fiction, and I, but I read a lot of literature. And I was going to be an English major in college, and but I was always doing plays. And then I just decided, fuck it, I'm going to go for it and try and be a professional actor. Mm. But um, I've always read a lot, you know, and I'm really grateful, again, grateful for those times. And it's hard for my son who's 15, like... I see him with his phone and his computer and the texting loves to just be texting his friends mm-hmm. and I text my friends and I get it, but it definitely distracts from time that he could be, he could be really trying to encourage him to read. And he reads a good amount, read, creating music, you know, being a creative person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's these phone, the phone issues is really big. I'm, I know that you've spoken about it before and dealt with it before. And it's one of the things we, we, one of the conundrums we have at Soul Pancake as a media company is like mm. most of our content is ingested on phones and, and yeah. laptops. And and yet at the same time with this scourge of depression and of anxiety and suicide among young people these days, it's so much of it has to do with like we're desocialized. We don't have groups and we're not connected and we're just staring at my tiny screens all the time. think when you talk about your company, because one of the ways I feel about this is that for better or worse, the internet is, social media is. Sure. And I feel like personally, I almost have a responsibility to show up and be vulnerable in that space and, and, and talk about things that are really important and post content that really matters and talk about political issues and personal issues and, and creative thought. And because in a way I feel like if I were to say, I don't want to participate in this system, then the system would just be left to people who are, I don't know, selling whatever they're selling sure. and, and commenting on reality TV. And and not that any of that's bad, but it can't be our whole world. And so I feel like we almost have a responsibility to show up. Like when, when Soul Pancake tweets are in my feed, I'm always so relieved. You know, yeah. there, there are people who I'm so happy to see in my Twitter feed because they brighten my day. Right. And you guys yeah. have done that yeah. with, with your company. And do you feel a little bit of that? Like you want to take up some of that space with goodness? Yeah. So that's a really interesting conundrum is I mean, there's a couple of different facets to the topic that you bring up. And again, like I talked about, like Soul Pancake, trying to make the world a better place through media. So we're Mm -hmm. trying to make uplifting content, inspiring content that binds people, that tackles big human questions and issues that, you know, elicits hopefully some some action and Mm -hmm. changes of thought. And yet so much of what's broken in the world is media and social media and the fact that we have this addictive little relationship with our phones. Mm -hmm. We're just staring into these little black rectangles all day long. But what are you going to do? You're going to ignore that? It's here to stay. Mm -hmm. And our phones are incredibly helpful. I mean, the navigation system in my phone got me here today. And I was able to make some business calls and and send some texts and not while driving. So the, the phones are here to stay. The social media is here to stay. How can we as a species learn to have a healthy, a moderate relationship with them and how do you and then the second question is like how do you and me who have some social following and people know who we are as tv celebrities like how do we impact the world and do do what we can with what we got Mm -hmm. so i have a lot of dwight fans out there so what can i do how can i really truly make an impact so you know i do philanthropy i founded soul pancake and soul pancake now works with participant media doing some work with them trying to make the world a better place, trying to galvanize young people toward action. And it's a, it's a tricky thing, you know, with that it's, mm-hmm. it's a tricky thing, that balance. One of the things that I've gotten more into these days, and I'm on the advisory board of a, of a nonprofit that has to do with uh, climate change. And I kind of feel like, well, you know, there's millions of Dwight fans out there on my Twitter feed and Instagram and stuff like that. And a lot of them are pretty lost about climate change. They don't know what to think or what to look at or what to do about it. Uh, it feels overwhelming. It's depressing. Mm-hmm. And and then some of them might even be hearing from their parents or their uncles like, oh, it's a hoax from the liberals and mm. uh, you know stuff like that. And they're kind of ignoring the science or not getting into the science. So I'm trying to do something around climate change 
you're doing the same thing. Like we yeah. do what we can. And I wish that more public figures would do more with their platforms to move the needle in a positive direction. And that doesn't just mean about yelling at people about Trump. You know, it doesn't just mean like, what an asshole he is and and kind of shout, the kind of shouting, but like, okay, that's that's all fine. You can do that, I suppose. But are you also creating positive a positive movement? Are you also building something? It's mm-hmm. easy to just protest and comment mm-hmm. and, and shout. It's easy to do that. But are you actually making something that makes the world a better place? That's a lot harder to do. So there's yeah. a lot of Twitter keyboard warriors, and I'm really not about that. I like that a lot. I think about it when you talk about the opportunity that we have when you've made something and you do have the ability to converse with millions of people every day. Mm-hmm. I think about operating my platforms as a way to spend my privilege. It is a privilege to converse with all those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not spending it, if I'm not willing to put my neck out there, if I'm not willing to risk being unpopular to fight for what's right and show up for people yeah. who need to be showed up for, mm-hmm then I don't know why I have the privilege in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that, that, you know, that's for me, that's, it seems to be for you. I, I don't expect everyone to have the same feeling about it, but I do really think we owe, we owe it to our community, our big digital community to show up for them in real ways. Now I, for me, because I'm a member of the Baha'i faith and a person of faith, to me, I look at it from a God perspective, but you certainly don't mm-hmm. have to, because I feel like, God gave me certain talents and faculties, and it's my privilege to put those to use. Mm -hmm. So this geeky science fiction reading kid becomes an actor playing these weirdos, and all of a sudden I stumble into the greatest weirdo role that's been on American television in in decades, and I get to play Dwight Schrute, and then all of a sudden I have an audience. So this geeky kid uh, Mm -hmm. has has a large audience. So it's, it's up to me to utilize God's gifts that I was given in my body, mind, and spirit to to entertain, to tell stories, and to to maximize my talents, mm-hmm. to become the very best actor I can possibly try and be. Mm-hmm. And now that I have this celebrity platform, like how do I put that to the best possible use? And that really was the founding of Soul Pancake, where because you would ask on the elevator ride up here about Soul Pancake, and you know when I saw that the office was going to be on the air for a long period of time. All of a sudden I knew, cause you know what it's like, y- you never know if you're gonna have any income as an actor. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I've got five years of paychecks in my future. <laughs> I'm gonna be on a hit show. And this was like early on in season two of The Office. Like I get an opportunity, I have an opportunity now mm-hmm. to do something, to say mm-hmm. something, to make a mark. So I got together with a bunch of buddies and we built Soul Pancake. It started as a website and then became kind of a social media, digital media company, YouTube channel and and whatnot. And at the time, 10 years ago, there was not a lot of like positive media. It was mm. before Upworthy existed and some of those other companies. And so we were like, let's try and steer the ship of media and social media just one or two degrees mm. toward goodness toward impact, towards connection, towards inspiration. And so we were really at the cutting edge of that, of that movement. And we see the impact that that has made. So I was just trying to take what I was given and then put it to the best possible use. Mm-hmm. And in the case of, so, you know, there's a lot of things I've tried that have failed, but so Pancake worked out pretty well and is, you know, has hundreds of millions of fans and viewers and and has uh, and, and helped people's lives. So I'm lucky. And it's great because it was one of those things that I take all the credit for it, but I didn't do the work. So I had this team <laughs> of people like putting in the 60, 70 hours of work on it, you know? And hmm. meanwhile, it's like Rain Wilson's Soul Pancake Company did X, Y, and Z. So, right. um, well, I just, again, I just took the credit. Well, it takes so many people for things like that. I, I think about it even in terms of when we make TV shows, people know the cast, right? Maybe seven mm-hmm. to 10 people. Sure. And the, I, not the 200 people behind. Yes. And I'm constantly yes. talking about the crew. Mm-hmm. It's 150 to 200 people yeah. on the other side of those camera lenses who are making everything happen with us. Yep. We're such a team. Yep. And yeah, I don't know. I, I'm so grateful for 
every single person who contributes to a piece of creativity making it to air or to the internet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it it, yeah. it does really take a village. Yeah. I would love to go back because you mentioned it in in telling that story, and we've touched on it a couple of times. When you talk about your faith, mm-hmm. I so enjoyed our our metaphysical milkshake uh, conversation because we really got into the idea of it. And and for listeners at home who hear you say, I'm a member of the Baha'i faith and go, huh? Huh? Can you, can you walk us through what that means? Sure. Um, it's a, always a tricky conversation because mm. the Baha'i faith is very, very nuanced and complex mm. with a rich history of several hundred years and tons of social teachings and mystical writings and teachings and, you know, in a worldwide Baha'i community of five or six million people, it's very hard to sum it up in a thumbnail. But Mm -hmm. I will say that it's a worldwide religion. It's the second most widespread religion in the world. So it's in every country in the world, but the numbers are small. So next to Christianity, it's the most widespread. It started around 150, 180 years ago in what is now Iran, it was then called Persia. And a Persian nobleman who went by the title, who was given the title Baha'u'llah, whose name means the glory of God. Baha'is are followers of Baha'u'llah, who we believe is a divine teacher for this day and age, who brought a message of, like all the great divine teachers, of love and unity mm. and harmony and acceptance and diversity and inclusion. But one of the main things that Baha'u'llah taught is that that he is the most recent in a long line of these divine teachers, that there's only one God, and that this God educates humanity spiritually by sending down this kind of list of divine teachers. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when you go through elementary school, you have your kindergarten teacher, your first grade teacher, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Now, your second grade teacher knows just as much as your sixth grade teacher, but they're not choosing to reveal everything to you because you're not ready yet. Mm. So these spiritual teachers like Krishna, the Buddha, Abraham, Moses, uh, Jesus, Muhammad, they're gradually unfolding God's divine revelation to humanity. So there is only one religion. That's what mm. Baha'is believe. There is only act- in actuality one religion. It may look like you look out there and wait a minute, there's a dozen different religions and they all believe really vastly different things. But mm. There is only one gradually unfolding religion of God Mm. and its essential message. When you look at the primal message of Krishna or the Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad, it's Mm. the same. It's love one another, give service to one another. This physical world is is fleeting. Mm. We are we are spiritual beings inhabiting bodies. You know, there's some universal truths that run through all of these religious faiths. So Mm -hmm. that's that's essentially what Baha'is do. So as a Baha'i, I believe in the Bible and in Jesus and in Muhammad and the Quran, but I also follow the teachings of Baha'u'llah. Many of his teachings are very socially progressive teachings about eliminating prejudice and the equality of women and men and eliminating extremes of wealth and poverty and mm. doing a lot of social good and stuff like that. And as you explain all of that, it does strike me as essentially everything every religion says in its own way. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, these ideas that we're meant to be good to each other, we're meant to provide for each other, mm-hmm. we're meant to lift each other up, we're, we're meant to lead with love. And I think that's what set me on my own exploration of faith, because I grew up with, I grew up in a family where I have a parent who's was raised Catholic, a parent who is agnostic, and then my aunt and uncle who are Jewish. I grew up celebrating Christmas and going to synagogue on every high holiday. I... I was always sort of fascinated by why there was an argument. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid not being able to fathom how the Holocaust could have happened, Mm. how we as a people could have demonized a group of people among us for their religion. And then learning that this happens, you know, as to your point, as you get older, every grade, you learn that there have been more and more of these wars, whether it's you know, ethnic cleansing in the Congo or or Vietnam or Darfur. And uh, it's so crazy to me that we do this to each other when yeah. we really all believe the through line of what we all believe is essentially the same. And I was really fortunate like you to, to have a 
school with such access to arts and such access yeah. to so many different ideas. And I, I took a, a, an Islamic studies course my senior year in high school wanting to, or maybe it was my junior year. It's been so long. I don't remember. That's embarrassing. Um, it's a sign you're getting old when you're like, how old was I when? Mm. Uh, and, and I remember just really falling in love with my studies of the Quran and then seeing just a few years later in college when 9-11 happened, yeah. how an entire group of faith was demonized. Demonized, yeah, totally. Rather than, rather than a group of extremist terrorists being examined, rather yeah. than us studying the roots of terrorism. Rather how, than a couple hundred or a couple thousand people yep. in a religion that incorporates a billion and a half people on the yes. planet, rather than, you know, these mm -hmm. bad apples within a beautiful faith system mm -hmm. perpetrating this violence. Well, and anyone who's willing to bastardize a faith or an ideology, and it struck me that, you know, not to take it too dark, but I remember Oklahoma City and thinking, well, why didn't that person, why, why haven't people who look like you and I who've committed mm -hmm. terrorist atrocities yep. mm -hmm. somehow by doing those things damned their entire group of people? Oh, sure. You yeah. know, the yeah. the... the the standards are not the same. Right-wing extremists are a far greater terrorist threat to mm -hmm. the United States than, than Islamic terrorists. Yep. And the FBI has been saying that for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, there are factual studies that prove exactly that. Just look at the numbers. And we, and we, yeah. and we don't acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, so strange to me to sort of bring it back around that any person could justify, quote, faith, being their reason for harming another person when the yeah, through line is supposed to be care for each other. Yeah, but this is, and this is why Baha'is believe that religion, and which is a dirty word these days, all of these mm -hmm. central concepts of, that you talk about, like religion, faith, spirituality, God, they've all be, kind of become dirty words. Like religion in the best sense needs kind of refreshing mm -hmm. because like Christianity, for instance, became a, Christianity, oddly enough, the teachings of Christianity were warped to become tools of oppression, mm. where it's like, oh, if Native Americans and, and Africans were deemed not as human, then we didn't need to love our neighbor because they're not human. They're part animal or, or whatever. We get to take the land away from the Native Americans, and we didn't, then we import slave labor from Africa to actually do our work. So we're working... Mm stolen work on stolen land and was all justified by the church. But mm. if you go back to what Jesus said, it's so pure and so loving and it's serving the poor and serving the, the uh, you know, a diverse group mm. of people. You know, he, he hung out with people of different races and tribes and, and mm. whores and, and addicts and poor and the poor and just served them. It had gotten so far away from its roots mm -hmm. when you think about now, I'm not, I'm not trying to judge or damn all Christians. Of course not. There's, I've seen so many great works being done throughout the world. And have I travel, you know, the, the third, the developing nations and see the work that's being done by so many of them, Christians emulating the great work of Jesus Christ. But this is why religion needs to be refreshed to mm. go back to those basics. Have you ever read Religion for Atheists, the Alain de Botton book? Oh, no, but I know, oh. I know his work. And in fact... Alain de Botton started a school for... School of Life. School of Life. It's so good. Yeah, but you know what his inspiration for School of Life was? No. Soul Pancake. Soul Pancake? Stop. Yeah. <gasps> so, Wait, does that give you the chills? I mean, a, you've known for longer than I have. I just found out this second, but... Yeah. Yeah, it was... Wow. I won't say it's a singular inspiration, but it was one of his inspirations of, of what Soul Pancake was doing. Wow. You know, uniting people around ideas, uplifting, not getting in the same old tired political arguments and sniping. He comes from an atheist perspective, but I love his, his atheist perspective is really, is really beautiful and accepting and inclusive. Mm -hmm. He's not like condemning people that believe in God no. at all. Um, he's really more of an agnostic. Just, I love mm -hmm. his, his stuff. I have not read that. His, his perspective to me almost feels like a bird's eye view yeah. looking over all the religions and just saying, hey, don't you see all this stuff up here mm -hmm. that's true for all of us that doesn't even have to do with whatever specific thing you believe? Yeah. And it's a really fascinating book. And he posits that so much of what we under of what we know yeah. to to come from religion 
you know, systems of gathering, systems of service, all these things existed so far before modern religion and that modern religions adopted sort of societal behaviors of of pagan communities and of tribal communities sure. and that we should take those things back yep. no matter what religion we are or if you don't have one at all that they that they really are the foundations of how we coexist together and that they're bigger than than any and i think about i think about that on the grandest possible scale when i when i see cave paintings and i think mm. about what must of the the cavemen our cavemen ancestors from you know 50,000 years ago hundred thousand years ago, you know, what was that like where again, art, culture, religion, all blended seamlessly. So the story of the hunt, the the mythology of our people and our tribe, the shaman who is part entertainer, he's part part Sasha Baron Cohen, mm-hmm. part clown, part priest, and revelator and also keeper of the the flame of mythology mm. and uh, bringing people together in this cave, in this tribe. And of course, that tribe was fighting another tribe and fighting another tribe. But I think de Bouton is exactly right, which is we taking the bird's eye view. We now need to do this with humanity because yeah. now it is very clear ever since we went to the moon and we looked back on planet earth and it's a mm. shining blue marble down below that as soon as we saw that, we saw, oh, we are 7 billion people sharing a planet in outer space. Yeah. So what, is, what does this mean that we're humanity, we're different skin colors, we're different genders, we're different sexual orientations, we're different cu- uh, cultures and tribes, but we're one tribe, we're a human species sharing a planet. How, what's, what's our equivalent of being gathered in that cave mm. to talk about the day's hunt, to share together, to sing songs, to share our mythology, to celebrate our differences and celebrate our similarities. And um, anyways, that's where humanity needs to head. We have to head or we'll just die. How do you do that? How do you, how do you gather? What's your cave? Well, this is for me, again, like I feel almost embarrassed about talking about this and I, and I shouldn't, I should own it. But for me, that's what religion can do. Mm. Religion, people, young people see as like obsolete and a force for evil in the world. And, and religion has to do with judgment and, you know, separating people and, and creating resources and hoarding land. And, but there's other things, but religion, literally the word religion has at its root religio, which means to rebind, to connect people. So what young people who are staring at their shiny black rectangles in their pockets all day long, what we need is religion. And I'm not talking about like a specific religion. I'm not saying, oh, you should become a Baha'i or you should become a Muslim or a Christian or whatever like that. But what we need is to rebind. We need to reconnect. Mm. The, the, the suicides and uh, anxieties and uh, depression that, that young people are suffering from and absolutely epidemic proportion. I mean, it is, the statistics are mind boggling. Mm. What we need is to rebind together as a human species and and to connect. So for me personally, I feel like the Baha'i faith provides that not only for me, but for humanity and for other people. So I'm very involved in, in, in those activities. And, and that doesn't just mean, I mean, it can be praying together. It can be worshiping together. It can be serving together. Mm. It can be fighting for social justice together too, which is a spiritual act. I believe Mm -hmm. it's not spirituality. It's not just something you do in a yoga studio, you know, Mm -hmm. when the right incense is burning and you feel the right kind of tingles in your chest. It, it has to be to trying to serve the poorest among us and to uplift people, to, to unite people, stuff like that. So that's my focus. It's it's not yours, doesn't need to be yours, doesn't need to be the various listeners. There, but that's, that's the goal is um, let's, let's be in rooms together. Let's be outdoors together. Let's see each other's eyeballs and connect and, and sing and make art. And I'm sounding like just the most grandiose hippie right now. But <laughs> that's, um, that's what it's all about. I get very excited talking about that. Yeah. And that's what, it's what humanity... It's what humanity needs, certainly what America needs. I'm not quite sure why this is the question that popped up in my brain as you talked about that, but you telling me about your childhood and how you felt 
you were this this very nerdy kid. You know, you you describe yourself as an outcast, and you talk about how in your adulthood you play these outcasts or these sort of un, unpopular or or unexpected humans. Do you think that your faith, the way that you grew up with this belief in all people being divine, did that help you as a kid when you were going through those awkward phases? Because I know what it is to be a kid with my own awkward phase, and I know how terrible kids are to each other. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that the bullying that you experienced or that I experienced is is different from what kids go through now. To your point, now they're on phones. It's it's cyberbullying. It's another thing. But w- did you have a different perspective on whatever it was like for you as a, as a nerdy kid who was treated in whatever way you were because of this, do you think? Well, I think what because I left the Baha'i faith for a long time. So I, I oh. um, when I was about 20 years old and living in New York and trying to be an actor going to NYU, I just decided I didn't want anything to do with morality. I didn't want anything to do with God. I didn't want anything to do with the, the religion of my parents, mm. you know? And so I really jettisoned everything having to do with spirituality. And I don't want to say I lived like in total debauchery. I mean, there was definitely some debauchery, but <laughs> I just was an atheist, agnostic, bohemian. I just wanted to be an artist in, in New York mm. City, and I didn't want any part of of that. But I do think that when I look back on my childhood, going to your question, the thing that being growing up Baha'i gave me was a sense of the larger questions and the larger purpose. Mm. So from Soul Pancake, you know, we have this podcast that you were on, Metaphysical Milkshake, that I do with Reza Aslan, the great scholar and media presence. And it's about life's biggest possible questions. That's what the podcast is about. And that's what we try and explore at Soul Pancake. So the the science fiction and the nerdiness and the chess, Mm. meeting the acting and and the Baha'i faith, for me, I feel like I'm really grateful because it gave me a kind of, you talked about a bird's eye view, but a big mm. vision. Like mm. I've always had like a, a, a big vision of what can humanity, what should, what should I strive for? What should my family strive for? What should humanity strive for? What can the arts do? Mm-hmm. You know, what can the media do? Mm-hmm. How do we bring people together? I don't, I'm not saying I have answers or solutions or anything like that. I'm, you know, stabbing in the dark on a lot of it. But I do think that it, it helped give that nerdy kid a vision where if I didn't have that vision, that same nerdy kid might just be, you know, I don't know, a computer programmer somewhere in, in some basement or something. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with computer programmers in basements. They, they make the world run. But I think I would, my... But you might have missed your calling. Yeah, I might have missed my calling and mm. certainly kind of a greater scope or a greater purpose. Mm. And that's another thing religion can give us is purpose. And it's one thing that people are missing. Mm. And again, I'm going to say religion. And what I mean by that is like any kind of belief system that brings people together and gives them meaning and sets them on a path. So mm. I'm not trying to like convert people to Baha'i faith. It's not about that. Mm. But I do think that that's what religion can do is give you a sense of purpose. That's what young people need. Mm-hmm. There's a purposelessness out there that is that is really sad, you know, and with climate change and the current current political climate and the isolation, you know, that's it's um you know, it's a recipe for a lot of anxiety. curious about something you just mentioned. You talked about your time at NYU and you wound up in the graduate acting program there. Yeah. And, and I, and I read, you, you've said that it was the best possible place for you in the entire world. Mm-hmm. What was the experience of moving to New York from Chicago? Like what, what was the village like in the mid eighties? What was school like? Can you, can you give us a little bit of that period of your life yeah yeah well that's uh thanks thanks for your your you're bringing me back to those <laughs> those wonderful those delicious parts of my youth i feel mm. like old man old man grandpa theater you're like back when i was a child this is how it was so i moved to new york in 86 okay. when there were still st- subway tokens you had to go to the booth and buy tokens to get in the subway 
and they were covered in spray paint. And this was like the crack epidemic was just starting to take off. So mm. crack was being sold all over. It was a lot of, uh, it was a pretty dangerous place. In fact, I, I lived in a lot of neighborhoods that now are like so fancy, like Chelsea. And it was, you know, this crack was being sold up and down 8th Avenue, you know, it was, mm-hmm. but yeah, for a nerdy Seattle boy moving to New York City in the late 80s, uh, it was, it was pretty mind blowing. And why do I say it was like the best possible place for me? Like, because I was pretty successful as an actor in college and I was getting like lead roles and I was like, oh, maybe I could make this a profession. So I went out in Seattle and I started auditioning in, I had gone from Chicago back to Seattle. Mm. I went to Boston for a little while and then I went back in Seattle. So I'm 20 something, I'm back in Seattle and I start auditioning and I'm like, whoa, I'm nowhere near good enough to be landing roles even at small Seattle theaters. So I auditioned for like American Buffalo at Seattle Rep and the Glass Menagerie at the Empty Space and like, you know, these little theaters. And I was doing monologues and trying to, and I was like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful of this about myself. Like I know how good I am. Like I know my strengths and I also, and I, and I think a lot of actors don't have this ability. Mm. And I was like, I'm not good enough. I don't have the skills. I am not going to be able to make it as a professional actor right now. I need training. So I wanted to find the best possible training and I was lucky enough to get into NYU uh, grad program, even though I wasn't, hadn't finished undergrad, I, I ended up getting my BFA from there. And um, because it was three years of 16 hours a day, just working on being an actor. Mm. And so voice and speech clowning, we did circus class. It was, you know, it was Shakespeare. It was, you know, scene study, of course, and mm you know, running a light board and doing props backstage and just being in total immersion in the craft of creating characters and creating theater and storytelling and for three years. And it was, it was amazing. So it's body, mind, spirit. And, uh, and NYU kind of still has that philosophy of, you know, the purpose of the actor is greater than just to try and like get a job, you mm-hmm. know, and, CSI Fresno or whatever. And it's more, it's more than that. Like it's that we have a a role to play as actors. We're storytellers. We're a vital part of the conversation and to be daring in our work and stuff like that. had a lot of great teachers and Mm -hmm. had a big impact on me. That's so cool. And then your first theater job was in a Shakespeare play, right? Shakespeare in the park. Yep. I did Two Shakespeare in the parks, right? When I got out of school, I did a lot of Shakespeare for a long time. Um, I did, then I was in the, uh, a touring company called The Acting Company. I spent two and a half years on the road doing Shakespeare productions in mm. high school auditoriums and in college theaters. And my first role in that was playing the nurse's assistant in Romeo and Juliet. Hey, So I started at the bottom. I started <laughs> at the bottom of the actor food chain. Mm-hmm. I was Peter, the nurse's assistant, for a year and a half on the road in Romeo and Juliet, understudying Mercutio. I got to go on a, a handful of times, but traveled the country in a bus and truck, a stinky bus, and playing in doing 10 a.m. matinees in high school cafeterias doing Romeo and Juliet. Wow. Yeah. Did you love it? I loved it and hated it, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mostly loved it, and I'm grateful for the, for the experience. And was it after that touring experience that you moved to L.A.? Yeah, so I did that, and then I did a bunch more theater in New York for a few more years before I went to L.A., and I moved to L.A. about 20 years ago. I'm, I'm very old, Sophia. You have I'm a very, very young old. spirit, sir. You will uh, never age. You know, I just heard an interview with Clint Eastwood, and someone was talking about his favorite phrase, and it's, don't let the old man in. And so they were like, they're like, how do you stay so young and so vital and you do so much and you direct all these movies and play jazz and golf mm-hmm. and travel the world and stuff like that, whatever you think about Clint Eastwood. And, and he's like, you don't let the old man in. Genius. So I'm 53. I want to not let the old man in. He's trying to get in, folks. He's trying to get in. You barricade this, that door. Into this pudgy, sad, middle-aged body, but <laughs> I don't want to let that old man in. No, not welcome here. But okay, so you go back to New York, you're doing theater, you come to LA. How does the office happen? 
And what do you think it is? Like when you audition for that, do you have any idea what's coming? Yeah, no, it's not, it's, it's nothing fancy. I, I moved to LA and I started getting little jobs in, in TV and film. Uh, the first two movies I did when I got here were tiny roles in Galaxy Quest and Almost Famous. Hey. And that was in 99, 2000. And then I did like House of a Thousand Corpses, this horror movie where I got sawed in half and my bottom half of my torso was attached to a giant fish's tail in a, in a Rob Zombie film. And then uh, I was on like Charmed in a guest spot and like CSI in a guest spot and yeah. Law and Order a guest spot and, you know, just kind of some pilots that didn't go and and blopping along. And then... um you know, I think the the story that sums it up the best, and I kind of tell young actors this story, uh, is I I knew these casting agents that were really good to me and really super cool, Libby Goldstein and Junie Lowry Johnson, and they would bring me in for whatever they were casting at the time, and they were doing this show called Six Feet Under on HBO, mm. and I really wanted to be on that show. I just loved the show so mm. much, and I, and I went in and auditioned for five different roles that I did not get. And I would, small roles, just three lines here, five lines there. And then I auditioned for one of the small roles, tiny roles that I didn't get. And I saw on the call sheet that there was this new character they were introducing named Arthur, who was going to have a big arc. And he was like described as like a Peter Sellers nerdy undertaker, mm. you know, apprentice undertaker, who was very odd. And I was like, oh my God, I could so play that role. That's me. I, I need. So I went to Libby and I was like, hey, I see this on the breakdown. Is there any way I could audition for this role as well? And she was like, and this is how she talks. And this is not mocking. This is literally how she talks. She's like, oh my God. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, let me check and see. And she went in and she was like, I talked to the director and he said, yeah, fine, you can audition. So just come back in an hour and look over the sides and the lines and you can audition for it. So I went off, like had an hour, mm -hmm. looked at the lines, memorized them as well as I could, made some choices, came back in and, and got the role of Arthur. So I did 13 episodes on this show, Six Feet Under on HBO. That was, and it was a very popular show at the time. And that's what got me the office, essentially. So I had auditioned Amazing. for Dwight and and it was kind of the same thing. I saw like, I knew the English office and I knew that I could kick ass mm -hmm. at this kind of part. But because of my success on this other show, that opened the door. So for me, this show is a very valuable kind of spiritual lesson. It's like God answers you, yes, no, or not yet. Mm. And- not, I am so grateful that I didn't get those little guest spots on mm. Six Feet Under with three lines or five lines. Because <sighs> had I gotten one of those, I never could have played Arthur, which never would have opened the door to the office. Mm. So you never know what the universe has in store for you. And all the rejection could be leading up to a much bigger door opening in your future. I love that. What was your favorite thing about playing Dwight? I think um, my favorite thing, well, there's too much to list. Um, mm. uh, I love playing a, a weirdo. Great. I like doing the physical comedy. I always begged them to write me more like physical comedy and they would get, I'd get to do a lot of it from the clowning stuff. You know, I love mm. doing physical comedy and that's some of the work I'm most proud of on it. And, but really the collaborative spirit that Greg Daniels and, and Steve Carell, you know, created on the set where all ideas were welcome. You could improvise, mm. make it your own we played together, you know, as a family on that set. And it was, directors would come in and their jaws would drop. They couldn't believe how much love and openness and collaboration existed mm. on that set. It was not like other TV sets, which can, as you know, can be very toxic environments and very mm -hmm. closed and very hierarchical. You know, here's Greg Daniels running the show. He also created King of the Hill. He wrote on Seinfeld. He wrote on Saturday Night Live. He wrote on The Simpsons. Like, and you could just go to him and say like, hey, what about an idea? What about this? You know, like I remember having the idea like Jim ordering Dwight Gaydar, you know, to see if it works on Oscar and if Oscar's gay, like literally like Gaydar, like a metal mm -hmm. detector. And Greg's <laughs> like, oh, that's great. And he went 
had some writers write it up and wrote a scene. That's just how we worked. So it was yeah. really, uh, again, so grateful to be a part of that kind of uh, collaborative experience. And what a lesson too, that if you value everyone, if you, if you let everyone in the room feel ownership over what they're making, what they're making becomes so incredible. And they're, and they're in it for the long haul too. And then you get, you know, nine years of great work out of people because they're, they're a part of that. They're a part of that process. It doesn't exist very much in the TV world, but boy, was I lucky. I mean, come on. I love that. So in the spirit of collaboration, you spoke about Reza. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you guys come to work together? So Reza Aslan is a fiction writer. He is an author. He is a uh, he is a religious. He's a PhD in kind of religious studies and mm-hmm. as a scholar as well. He's well known like pundit on news channels. He had his own show on CNN for a while called Believer. Mm-hmm. And um, I met him through the grapevine and we always hit it off. We have a lot of similar ideas. We have some some discrepancies, but we have some similar ideas about art and faith and service and making the world a better place. And I was really, I loved his, um, especially his book Zealot, which is about kind of mm-hmm. a whole different way of looking at Jesus and and Christianity as a as an act of like social rebellion it was really interesting, and. Like two years ago, we had a breakfast and we were just talking about all these ideas. I'm like, we need to do a podcast together. Like this is, we're so in alignment. We're so deeply curious about the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there was a long process of developing it. What's it going to be? What are we going to call it? Where are we going to do it? How's it going to be organized? You know, there's so many different things to consider when you're doing a podcast. And that's when we started Metaphysical Milkshake. It's so cool. I just love it. And it's such an amazing partner piece to soul pancake yeah i'm yeah. so excited about and it's a, it. yeah and so we were really excited to team with soul pancake on it mm-hmm. because soul pancake's interested in the same things we're interested in yeah big human questions big universal stuff you know love and loneliness and work and service and we, we just recently did one on memory we have one coming out on you know indigenous spiritual traditions and mm. uh, my uncle is a is a professor and his study, he studies beauty, literally mm. the psychology of beauty. So we did an episode on beauty, like both mm. physical beauty, psychological beauty, moral beauty. Mm. You know that, do you know that people are wired to appreciate moral beauty? Like we're wired to appreciate good moral acts wow. and to see the beauty in those, in those acts. That's actually like a, a whole new school of psychology realizing that we, we're drawn to the beautiful, not just the visual beautiful, but the psychological and moral and spiritual beautiful. So that's one of our episodes too. So I love it. I love having those those conversations. So folks listening at home want to get started diving into your content. If they haven't yet, where should they Yeah, begin? well, it's this, it's this company called Luminary. Unfortunately, you have to subscribe. They're trying to be kind of like the Netflix of podcasts. And you'll mm-hmm. be like, why should I spend $4 a month or $8 a month or however much it is. And I can have all the free podcasts. I can listen to Sophia Bush all the time for free. <laughs> because there's a lot of cool podcasts on Luminary. You have to get the app. Russell Brand's on there. Trevor Noah, Lena Dunham. There's a lot of great talkers and thinkers and stuff like that. And, uh, and that's where they find it. Hmm. Metaphysical Milkshake. Cool. So my final question for you, which I do like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, as it is the title. When How much can hear- I bench? How much can you bench? Uh, One thirty. I'm not that strong. I mean, that's impressive. That's a whole human. That's a very light human. Well, that's like a teenage girl. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I that's can a bench human. a teenage girl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm very glad you answered that. Okay. It good. was my most pressing question, but my second most pressing question is: as it is the title of the podcast. When you hear the phrase work in progress, what comes to mind for you as being a work in progress in your life? Wow, great question, great title. Love that so much. You know, life is a precious gift. We talked about recently putting our having to put our dogs down because of yeah. cancer and 
I have several friends who have recently been dealing with cancer and life is just so infinitely precious and very, very short. Mm. And what is my work in progress? Like what next for me? You know, like quite honestly, like Mm. I really love acting. I'm kind of like you, like I love acting, but it's not everything that I am and it's not really everything I want to do, you know? And so what next dear universe can Mm. I put whatever qualities and attributes and skills that I've acquired to this point, what next to both fulfill myself, but also be of service to others. So am I, I may not have yet found my highest calling, you know, what next? I don't know. Does it mean just going and serving poor people or doing education? Or does it mean making people laugh more? I I don't know. So my work in progress is, you know, what, what, what next, dear universe? I feel like that would be such a good prompt for a journal in the morning. Hmm. Have you asked yourself that question and seen what comes out? That's a good idea. I need to do that. I haven't. I'm going to do it with you. Okay, let's do I'm that. I'm feeling very inspired. Oh, excellent. <laughs> thank you so much for coming today and bringing all of your wisdom and humor and oh, loveliness. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is. Yeah. I really admire what you do and... And who you are, and you, like I said, you walk the walk. You don't just talk about it. You you are involved in so many great causes, and uh, it's I don't know how you have the time, the hours, and the day to do what you do. But um, really exciting. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.